our view of God is often too small. As I, as I read through the book of Isaiah this, this past week, I was astounded by His majestic greatness. This book, it, it reveals His utter sovereignty. He truly is in control of all things. Nothing and no one can compare with Him. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 and 26, we read, To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. No one is like the God of Isaiah. No one else can say, as he says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This is but part of the reason that he is supremely glorious, worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. He is furiously holy, perfectly pure, and without sin. As we heard from several times this morning in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, our God is not just holy, no, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. Do you see how grand the vision of God is for Isaiah? And such a vision of God ought to remind us that our sin is treason against the Creator of the universe. And yet, He purposes to deal graciously with His people, redeeming and rescuing us from our rebellion. And so God says to His people in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so this morning, we begin our study of this grand book over the next several weeks and months. And and I pray that each Lord's Day that our God gives us to study this book, He would give us a grand vision of Himself, a grand vision of His purposes and His salvation in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Isaiah on page 566. 566. Isaiah comes after the Song of Solomon, uh, which is basically the the last of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament there. It's it's the first of the prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah is considered a a major prophet uh, as opposed to a minor prophet because of its length. Uh, Major prophets in the Old Testament are substantially longer books, uh, where uh, minor prophets are are usually shorter works. So let's let's read how this long and wonderful work begins there with just verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this morning, we're going to be looking at this one verse and the whole book of Isaiah. Uh, We'll consider Isaiah's genre, author, audience, history, and message. And in case you don't see how those five matters are buried in that one verse, let's read it again. I'll point them out to you along the way. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision. There's the genre of Isaiah, the son of Amos. There's the author, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. There's the audience. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. There's the history. And and taken as a whole, we see a message that flows out of this vision that Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So if you're taking notes this morning, those are the five points that we're going to think through. And those five points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. You should be able to find an outline, a copy of the outline there as an insert in your bulletin. Um, and the, the fifth point is really where we're going to take a look at the book as a whole. We will walk through the whole book. So buckle up when we get there. But let's begin with our first point. Let's begin with Isaiah's genre. Uh, the opening words of this book, the vision, ought to have an impact on how we read the rest of the book. It ought to control how we read the book. Isaiah is given a vision from God of what is happening and what will happen. So notice there are just a nuance the genre of prophecy with the language that Isaiah is given a vision of what is happening and what will happen. Um, Prophets in the Bible both foretell, try to pronounce the T-H on the end of that, they foretell, 
tell, and they foretell. They foretell in the sense that they, they tell the people of God how they ought to be faithful to the God who's been faithful to them. They are identifying unfaithfulness and guilt of the people of God. So this is how Isaiah opens. Look down there at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Do you see what Isaiah does there? He calls heaven and earth to act as witnesses against the people of Israel. And then he brings his charge. Israel has rebelled. And then he proclaims Israel's guilt. They are a sinful nation. In his fourth telling, Isaiah gives God's perspective on the present historical situation. In his fourth telling, Isaiah gives God's perspective on the present historical situation at hand. Foretelling, on the other hand, is a prophetic declaration of what is to come in the future. So a a promise of what is going to happen is given, and then later in time that promise is fulfilled. When we get to Isaiah chapter 7, we'll think about the uh, Emmanuel promise, the sign child promise in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 where a a child will be born, and that's that's a, a, a foretelling. And what happens actually a chapter later is that that's fulfilled at one level with the birth of Maharshal al-Hashbaz. But that fulfillment actually has another horizon in two. So prophetic foretelling can have multiple horizons of fulfillment. We ultimately know that in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is that sign child. He is the Emmanuel, God with us. So prophetic foretelling is, is a declaration of what's to come in the future. And it's fulfilled later on in time. It can have multiple horizons of fulfillment. And that's going to help us read Isaiah well, I think. This vision was given by God to a man named Isaiah, the son of Moses. So let's turn now and think about our second point, Isaiah's author. Uh, Chapter 1 tells us that Isaiah is a son. He's the son of Moses. We know really virtually... Nothing about his family lineage. We don't know about his father, uh, nor do we know anything about his sons. He, he had two sons, uh, one of them, Maharshal al-Hashbaz. He's mentioned in chapter 8, verse 3. His other son was named Shehir Jashub, which is mentioned in chapter 7, verse 3. Uh, from, from chapter 8, verse 3, it appears that Isaiah was married, uh, and he called his wife the prophetess. We don't know if that was because she had a ministry of her own of some kind, or simply because she was married to the prophet Isaiah. And played a role in giving birth uh, to that sign child. Uh, The details of of Isaiah's family background are lacking. uh, And they tell us precious little about him. On the other hand, his name tells us something. Uh, His name Isaiah means God is salvation. Means God is salvation. And as we'll think about a little later on, that could be a good way to summarize Isaiah's message to the people of God. So turn to Isaiah chapter 6. That's, I think that's page 571 of the Bibles provided. In, in this chapter, we learn about Isaiah's call as a prophet of God. He was doing something before he, he, came, he became a prophet, but we don't really know what that was. In verse 1 of chapter 6, we learn that Isaiah was called to serve as God's messenger in the year that King Uzziah died. That took place somewhere around 740 B.C. His ministry then stretched on, covering the the reign of kings that we saw mentioned there in chapter 1, verse 1, the kings of Judah. He mentions Sennacherib's death in chapter 37, verse 38, which means he ministered for nearly 60 years. He was a prophet, and his prophetic ministry stretched over 60 years. And this book is likely a, a single work written and compiled over the course of his whole ministry. Isaiah was humble. I think we see something of that here in chapter 6. He knew himself to be a sinner in need of God's grace. If you take a look there at verse 5 of chapter 6, you'll see that he confessed that he was a man 
of unclean lips. In that sense, Isaiah is a man that we can really relate to, can't we? I mean, who here has kept their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking lies? We have all said things that we should not have said. Like Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips and we are in need of God's grace and mercy. Isaiah's humility is also seen in his willingness to serve the Lord. When the Lord asks in verse 8, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah, he, he humbly steps forward and offers himself in the service of the Lord. And do, do you see what Isaiah is agreeing to there verses 9 and 10? They tell us that he was agreeing to go and preach to a people who would not listen to him. It takes humility to trust God's purpose and to step into that kind of ministry. And it takes faith too. Now what is most remarkable to me about the man Isaiah is his obedience. In verse 11, you'll notice there, uh, when the Lord asks, he, he kind of asks the Lord, how long am I really to preach to this people who will not listen to me? The Lord replies by effectively saying, until their judgment is complete. And from all that we can tell in this book, Isaiah seems to have humbly and obediently carried out this mission. Uh, there's so much we can learn from Isaiah in this regard. He faithfully pursued his calling day after day, week after week, year after year. You know, it strikes me that we live in an age of impatience. Uh, we, we live in an age where when little progress is seen, we simply change careers, even sometimes every couple of years. That's not to say that all career changes are, sin, are sinful, but it seems that very few are willing to be very faithful for a very long time doing the very same thing. This audience, he, he had an author. And that's the next point that we need to... Sorry, this author, he had an audience. That's the, the next point that we need to think about. We need to think about Isaiah's audience. So turn back to Isaiah 1.1. That's page 566 the Bible's provided. The audience is right there. We see that Isaiah was particularly concerned with Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah's message is mainly aimed at those who live in the city of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. Over and over again, Isaiah speaks directly to Judah and Jerusalem in this book. And, and even, even when he addresses surrounding nations, the nations kind of surrounding Judah like Babylon and Assyria and Moab and Damascus and Cush and Egypt, see that especially in chapters 13 to 27, even when Isaiah is addressing those, addressing those foreign nations, he means for the people of Judah and Jerusalem to be listening in to what he's saying because this is a vision concerning them. Isaiah has a message for the people of Judah and Jerusalem down through the ages. Uh, and, and, and a message for the people of God, uh, really, to the end of the ages. So Isaiah's audience is, is primarily during his lifetime, during the 8th century, Judah and Jerusalem. That's especially what chapters 1 through 39 are taken up with. And we're going to think about that history in a little bit. But, but here's the thing. I, Isaiah's audience is also the exiles from Judah and Jerusalem in the 6th century. That's, of course, to an audience that lived beyond his own lifetime. That's mostly what chapters 40 to 66 are taken up with. But then Jesus says this funny thing that we, we heard read earlier in the service from Mark's Gospel. In Mark uh, chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, we, we heard read, and he said to them, Jesus speaking to those religious leaders, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. Uh, there Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13. Isaiah's prophecy speaks and relates to Jesus' day as well. And you'll, you'll never guess where those Pharisees and teachers of the law came from. They came from Jerusalem. And at the end of the day, what we need to recognize is that we, you and I, here this morning, we are part of Isaiah's audience too. The Lord Jesus, He is coming back. And we must ask ourselves, will we rebel against the Lord as Judah and Jerusalem did? Or will we bind ourselves in faith to the servant of the Lord, to Jesus Christ, and so escape the coming judgment of God? Isaiah's audience, it, it runs down through the ages but his writing did emerge in a particular historical context in which he addresses historical realities. 
And so we need to think about this. Let's turn to consider our fourth point, Isaiah's history. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, Isaiah, Isaiah's history appears there in the words of the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Uh, Isaiah wrote and ministered during the reigns of those kings. That's Isaiah's contemporary context. But what is also true is that the book of Isaiah is nestled or situated in redemptive history while it addresses matters of contemporary history. So Isaiah is situated in a history larger than his own. And, and as a writer, I think that Isaiah is actually conscious of this. Uh, I, Isaiah is aware of the fact that something has begun in creation and that God's purposes are moving through history and that world history is headed to a new creation. So turn to the end of the book, the end of the book, Isaiah chapter 66. That's page 626 of the Bibles provided. Isaiah is conscious of creation, for he speaks of the God of creation time and time again. But he's also conscious of the God of creation who will bring about a new creation. So read Isaiah chapter 66 verses 22 to 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. You see, Isaiah has in view a story that has begun in creation, and he's caught up in that story, and he's looking, it's heading even to a new creation. The Bible really is a grand story. It's a true history of God's revelation of himself and how he will save sinners for his great name. If we do not really understand the Bible's history, then we will not be able to make sense of Isaiah's history, nor our own history. Over the years, I've been helped by Graham's, Graham Goldsworthy's uh, summation of the storyline of the Bible. Goldsworthy suggests the Bible is the story and revelation of God bringing his people into his place to live under his rule. The Bible is the story and revelation of God bringing his people into his place to live under his rule. And for a better understanding of the Bible's storyline, let me commend to you Vaughn Roberts' little book, God's Big Picture. It's just over 150 pages, and you can find a copy of it back in there in those books if you, if you want a copy of that book. Isaiah's history, his contemporary history, is situated inside of that larger history known as redemptive history. Isaiah's history contributes to the history of redemption in that it helps us to make sense of what has gone before, of, of, of where we are, where he is in his day, and where uh, the story of the Bible is going. Helps us to, to see what's coming ahead. I'm going to try and show you how that's the case as, as we work through Isaiah's uh, message. But before we get there, uh, just a word on Isaiah's contemporary history. And on the back side of that insert, I think you'll find a, an outline of kind of the history of the Bible. And on the inside, there's a map. Sorry, I couldn't put them on the same page. There that is. Hopefully that'll help you a little bit. Um, You'll notice what happens leading up to the time of Isaiah's ministry. Uh, we've already read about it in verses 2 through 4 of Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, Israel is filled with sin. God's people began to reject God's rule. And like Adam and Eve, they've decided to live their own way rather than God's way. And this leads from that straight line kind of dividing off. It leads to a fracture or a schism in the kingdom of Israel. The unified kingdom has been divided and now there's a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. Samaria serves as the capital city of the northern kingdom and Jerusalem serves as the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. Right? So Isaiah, because he's writing a message to Jerusalem and Judah, he's mainly speaking to the southern kingdom in that line. Kingdom's been torn apart at the seams and that's the context uh, into which Isaiah steps onto the scene to speak a word of judgment and a word of hope. Isaiah will say to these kings there in chapter 1, verse 1, you, you think that it's bad? Newsflash, it's going to get worse. The Syrians, if you want to take a look at that map, that might help you. The Syrians, they're going to, in the north, they're going to pose a severe threat. They're going to pose a severe threat. And once you've caught your breath, the Assyrians, 
are going to sweep down and trouble you. And just when you think you're safe, the Babylonians are going to come from the east. This is the contemporary context into which Isaiah ministers. This is what he speaks about. This is, this is troublesome history. Is what marked the reigns of the kings that he mentioned there in Isaiah 1.1. It's a period of international upheaval with the people of Judah locked in the middle of several international skirmishes. Isaiah, he sees the, the rise and fall of nations. But worst of all, he sees that what happens to Adam and Eve will happen to Israel and Judah. And, and here's how redemptive history, the larger story of the Bible, dovetails with Israel's contemporary history. Just as Adam and Eve were thrust out of God's place, out of the Garden of Eden, for their sin, so the northern kingdom of Israel will be swept out of the land, out of their land, and away to Assyria in 722 B.C. Judah, the southern kingdom, will survive the Assyrians, but hot on their heels will come the Babylonians, and they too will be thrust out of their land for their sin. You see, God, like He set Adam and Eve in the garden, set Israel and Judah in the promised land. And just because, just like Adam and Eve sinned, God thrust them out, just as Israel and Judah sinned, they will be thrust out too. It's a replay of what we saw happening in the book of Genesis. All of this occurs as a consequence of the sin of Israel and Judah. From Adam's day to Isaiah's day, at one level, nothing has changed. And something needs to change. You'll notice there on the, the handout, which contains the outline of biblical history, you'll notice that the exiles of Israel do return to the land there in 537, 538 B.C., in Isaiah 45, Isaiah actually foresees the rise of Cyrus and the Persian Empire. He's the one who's going to conquer the Babylonians and set the captives free. The people of Israel, they're going to return to the land. They'll rebuild the temple and, and go on with life. And yet, Isaiah's description of this release from exile by this figure who we'll learn about later, the servant of the Lord, is far too lofty to be fulfilled in Cyrus. There, there must be another horizon of fulfillment in view for the people of Israel. They, they would still, from time to time, come under the subjection, the rule of foreign nations. And part of what Isaiah teaches us is that God would send a servant who is also a son, and that he will save God's people from their sins. He will deal with the problem that unfolded in the beginning of redemptive history in the Garden of Eden. So let's think more now about our, our final point, Isaiah's message. This is where we're going to spend uh, the rest of our, our time. Let's turn back to the beginning, though. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. That's page 566 the Bible's provided. And I'm going to be mentioning a number of verses along the way as we march through the book. Uh, I tried to put most of them there in your handout. Um, so if you're trying to catch up or keep up, those, those may be a key and a help to you in this time. Uh, let me begin by reading the very first uh, verse in this book again. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Moses, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, now earlier I mentioned that Isaiah's message might be summarized, uh, summed up in his name, which means God is salvation. That, that idea, the idea that God is salvation implies something, doesn't it? It implies that people are in need of saving. We already know that this is the case, as we saw from the first four verses, the ones that follow after verse 1 here. They depict a rebellious people who don't know their God. You know, a donkey knows his master, an ox knows his master, but the people of Israel, they don't know their God. They're a rebellious people worthy of judgment. And throughout the whole of this book, Isaiah says to this people, you have sinned. And judgment through exile is coming. But trust in your God, for He will redeem you through His servant and His Son. Though Jerusalem will be destroyed, I will make all things new. That, that's, that's the message of Isaiah. Let me just explain that again. Isaiah is going to say to the people of Israel, You have sinned. Judgment through exile is coming. But trust in your God. 
For he will redeem you through his servant and son. Though Jerusalem will be destroyed, I will make all things new. That's the message of Isaiah. And in fact, we're given this message over and over and over again in the book of Isaiah. Over the course of 66 chapters, this message is repeated and intensified and clarified. This book, it's, it's not strictly chronological. So if you come to it expecting that the events of one chapter will occur after the events of the previous chapter, from time to time you're going to be confused because sometimes without warning, Isaiah will circle back and expand and on and intensify a subject and clarify it. So though the book is not chronological, it does have a progression. We get a, we'll get a real feel for this next week uh, when, Lord willing, we'll study Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, through the end of chapter 5, verse 30. The first five chapters are really a dehistoricized, if I said that word correctly, summary of Isaiah's message as a whole. In other words, Isaiah gives his message and he pulls out all the historic uh, particularities of his message. Isaiah introduces the promise of coming judgment and the promise of redemption through a righteous branch. And, but this raises a question. Why does Isaiah have the authority to announce judgment and promise grace from God? What gives Isaiah the right to say this kind of thing? Well, chapter 6 answers that question by recalling, relating the call of the prophet. Isaiah is an authorized messenger of God. He is one who has gone into the very throne room of God to receive this message. So he's authorized to deliver it. In chapters 7 through 12 then, historical circumstances are brought into view as the Syrian-Israelite coalition threatened the people of Judah. Where Syria is threatening them from the north. Ahaz, who's the king at that time, Ahaz and Judah, God's people, they are tempted to trust in Assyria. But Isaiah reminds Ahaz that the Lord is to be trusted. Don't trust in other kings. Don't trust in other nations. The Lord is to be trusted. Salvation is found in God. For Ahaz and Judah's lack of trust, Isaiah tells us he will cut them down as a woodsman mows down a forest. All the trees are, are left as stumps. But the imagery of the righteous branch that was mentioned there in Isaiah chapter 4 is expanded upon in this section. So if you fast forward to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and 2, we read, we read this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Here we are beginning to learn more about what the Lord's servant and Savior will be like. Not only will he gather elect exiles to himself, but he'll also gather all the nations. So look down there at verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 11. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He will bring all the people to himself. See, God's people will face God's judgment, but mercifully, they will also know his redemption. So what does this mean for God's people? It means that they should trust him. So flip over to chapter 12 and look there at verses 1 and 2. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. There's the theme of Isaiah. God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So with this promise of impending judgment, of God coming through and cutting down all the trees, this promise of of impending judgment hanging over the head of Judah. You know, they could be easily discouraged. They would be judged. It would happen through the surrounding nations. God would judge them through the surrounding nations. But what would happen to those nations? What would happen to God's enemies? Well, they would actually face God's judgment too. That's what Isaiah chapters 13 through 23 are about. The arrogant nations 
who oppressed God's people would face God's judgment too. If you just flip through those chapters, you kind of scanned the headings that the editors there put, put there in those uh, chapters, you looked at them one by one, you would see that Isaiah addresses the neighbors of Israel and the nation surrounding them. This vision is one of local judgment and then it's expanded to national judgment and really indeed cosmic judgment. That's what happens in Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. These chapters, 24 through 27, are sometimes known as the, the little apocalypse. Um, because what is in view is a judgment on the whole earth. And here, here's some of Isaiah's perspective on the end of time coming to the fore. So you look there, you turn to chapter 24, take a look at verse 1. Uh, we read, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Let's skip down to verse 3 there of Isaiah 24. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest of the people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. What does this mean for God's people? What should be the disposition of God's people in preparation for this worldwide judgment? Isaiah tells us there in chapter 26. Flip over to chapter 26 and take a look at verse 4. What should God's people do? Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Do you see how the message of Isaiah, God is our salvation, emerges and then re-emerges? And it keeps going. It emerges again and again. So if the nations of the earth were in view in chapters 24 to 27, Israel's relationship to the Lord is brought back into view in chapters 28 through 33. And here the message is clear. Don't trust in other nations. Don't trust in other nations. Don't put your trust in other kings. They can't save you. That's what happened in chapter 7 with Ahaz. He's putting his trust in other nations. This message is repeated. So take a look at Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 to 3. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. You flip over a chapter to Isaiah chapter 31. It says it all. Don't trust in other nations. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, stop for a minute. Let's think about our own lives in the midst of this message. We're just like the ancient people of God, aren't we? I mean, how often do we look to other people for our rescue? How often do we rely on the might of other men to secure our hopes and dreams? We use our bodies as enticements. We use our minds and our rhetorical wit. We depend upon our jobs and our retirement accounts for safety and security. Instead of relying on the God who made us, we look to money and power. Instead of the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills and is in control of all things. It is a constant challenge for us to find our safety, security, and satisfaction in God, in the God who saves. It's just as true for us today as it was in Isaiah's day. This message of Isaiah is for us. We need to trust in the God of salvation. While chapters 28 through 33 warn Israel not to put their trust in the nations that surround them, Chapters 34 and 35, they drive the point home once again, communicating that God will judge the nations and that He is the only hope of salvation. Take a look at chapter 34, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 2. 
For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. See, chapter 34 harkens back to what Isaiah addressed in chapters 13 through 28. Both local and global judgments in view here. And this leads beautifully into chapter 35 where the message is abundantly clear. Your God will come to save you. So trust in Him. Your God's going to come and save you. Trust in Him. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 35 verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Who among us here today is fearful? Are you fearful about the week you have ahead of you at school? Are you fearful about the week you have ahead of you in in your workplace? Or as you're looking for work? Are you fearful about the election? Or are are you fearful about the direction of, of a global society and culture? Or are you fearful about your marriage? Or about your life, just generally? Isaiah says to you, fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. This is the message. This message is important, really, for us and for what comes next in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 36 to 39, they're the longest narrative section in the book of Isaiah, and they recount the Assyrian crisis. No longer is Syria the problem, back in chapter 7. Now, a new and powerful nation is banging on the gates of Jerusalem. The dreadful Sennacherib has invaded Judah. Ahaz, chapter 7, Ahaz did not trust in the Lord when he previously faced a foe. Well, what will King Hezekiah do? Will he be tempted to trust in other resources? Or will he trust in God? What's the message of Isaiah? Is it not God is salvation? What we find here is that Hezekiah, he cries out to the Lord for deliverance. He looks to God for salvation. So his prayer, take a look at his prayer there in verse, uh, chapter 37. Three verses 16 to 20. Here's Hezekiah's prayer of salvation. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations of their land and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. They were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And what does the God of salvation do? Well, he saves his people. He struck down and killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. What should, God's, what should the response of God's people be? How should they live? They should continue to trust in the God of salvation. But do you know what happens? Sadly, in chapter 39, in Isaiah 39, we learn that Hezekiah, he invited an envoy from Babylon into the treasuries of Judah and Jerusalem. Seems like he's starting to trust other nations. Again, he's being invited once again to trust someone other than God. And the prophet Isaiah delivers to him some incredibly bad news. In Isaiah chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. Take a look at Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house... And that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Do you hear what Isaiah is prophesying? Do you hear what he's foretelling? He's telling Hezekiah, your sons and the people of Israel will be carried off to exile for your failure to trust in God. For your failure to trust in God. You are looking to other nations. Exile is coming. Judgment is coming. You will be thrust out of the land. Now, 
Take a look at what happens with chapter 40. Notice how it opens. I think that's page 599 that the Bible's provided. So we've just heard the promise of judgment and exile coming. Now look at what happens in chapter 40, how it opens. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So do you hear who Isaiah is speaking to? He's speaking to those who would be exiles in a future time, in the 6th century. He is speaking as if the judgment from Babylon has already taken place. This is a deliberate strategy, a literary strategy on Isaiah's part. By speaking to future exiles in chapter 40 and beyond, Isaiah is communicating that the Lord's promise of exile in chapter 39 is a fait accompli. It's a thing already done. It is so certain that you need to think of it as having already happened. And since the exile will certainly happen, here's the hope that your children are going to need when they're in Babylon. Here's the comfort that your sons will need to live through that time. Chapters 40 through 48, they then revisit some of the themes of chapters 1 through 39. The same themes. The people of God are once again called to trust in God, and in particular to look forward to the coming of His servant. So take a look at chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now in a historical sense, right, the, the Persian ruler Cyrus, he, he's going to come into our field of vision as the Lord promises that He will free the people of Israel from the rule of the Babylonians. Israel will come out of this dreadful exile. So skip ahead to chapter 45, verse 17. But Israel is saved by the Lord. With everlasting salvation you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. God's going to raise up a ruler. He's going to free the people of Israel. They're going to return from exile. But notice that language there. Isn't it, it, it looks beyond really what could be these historical settings to a grand figure. In chapters 49 to 55, the story progresses. And the theme of the servant who will rescue God's people from exile is further developed. On one horizon, this rescue from exile occurs through Cyrus. But on another horizon, a greater figure than Cyrus begins to come into our field of view. He is a servant who will not merely rescue God's people and lead them back to the earthly land of Canaan. No, He will rescue God's people from the spiritual exile that the sin of Adam thrust humanity into. See, this is a larger problem than just the nation of Israel. This figure, this servant of the Lord is going to rescue God's people from the spiritual exile that the sin of Adam thrust all of humanity into. He's a figure who will bring exiled humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, to God Himself. Right? Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence. And we need to be brought back into God's presence. Uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 49. We see this, this figure. The servant and the work that he's going to do. Verses 5 and 6. And, and now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant... To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. See, it's too small a thing just to rescue Israel from exile. God needs to rescue all of humanity from being exiled from His presence. So they might be brought back into His presence. 
Turn ahead to chapter 52 of Isaiah. See something similar in verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 52, verses 9 and 10. Break forth together into singing your waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now here's the thing. In order for the Lord's servant to rescue people from every tongue and tribe of nation, from the exile that Adam and Eve plunged all of humanity into, the Lord's servant would himself have to go through an exile. He has to be cut off from the land of the living. He has to suffer for the sins of all of those who would ever trust in God for salvation. So turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Verses 6 and 11. That's 6.14 of the Bibles provided. Pick up reading in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression... And judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who is considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Though the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. See, this righteous servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers, they tell us this explicitly. In the book of Acts, Philip is explaining to an Ethiopian eunuch reading this passage, Isaiah 53, that this is about Jesus. He gave up his life. He was the one and the only one who can bear the punishment for sinners like you and me. The punishment spoken of here in Isaiah 53. He gave up his life by dying on the cross and bearing the punishment of exile from God that we deserve for our sins. And the good news of the Bible is this, that Jesus... He did not remain dead. He did not remain exiled from the land of the living, but He came back from the dead. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead. And now He calls each one of us to trust in Him for salvation and to trust in no one else. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of Jesus Christ, hear this good news that He has paid the punishment that your sins deserve. Come to Him in repentance and faith. Believe this good news about Him. The God of the Bible, the God of Isaiah, is the God of salvation. And He has accomplished salvation in Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name, but in the name of Jesus. And after this in Isaiah, after we get this wonderful testimony, after having declared the coming salvation in and through the servant, Isaiah, he's not content to leave matters there. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapters 56 through 66, Isaiah speaks of the final salvation that the servant of the Lord will accomplish. He will not merely rescue, regenerate, and recreate a people for himself, but he will renew the whole cosmos. He will bring God's people out of spiritual exile, and he will bring about the end of days. By one day, leading people from every tongue and tribe and nation into the new heavens and new earth. So turn to the end of the book of Isaiah again. Uh, turn to chapter 65. Second to last chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles, that's 624. Now as we, as we begin to read these, these verses, let me encourage you to remember how Isaiah, how the book began, right? It began with Isaiah upbraiding rebellious Jerusalem. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he said that they were sinful, they were laden with iniquity, they were evildoers and corrupt. And now, how, now consider how Jerusalem is transformed as we're marching to the end of the book. 
There's a progression. Read verses 17 and 18. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I created. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people a gladness. Flip ahead to the final chapter. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 66, verses uh, 10 through 14. But before we do, recall that one of the problems that Isaiah identified with sinful Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, is that Israel didn't know her master. Remember the donkey, the ox? They knew their master, but Israel didn't know their master. Israel did not know or understand. Now consider how Israel's knowledge and understanding have been transformed. Especially consider verse 14 when we get to it. Let's begin in verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. And all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to His servants. And He shall show His indignation against His enemies. Notice the tender way in which the Lord speaks of Jerusalem. Where the hand of the Lord was not known to His servants. Chapter 1 verse 3. What we see here in verse 14 is that it is known now. And I wonder, as we conclude, I wonder, do you hear the grand message of Isaiah? Through the whole book, Isaiah has said to Judah and Jerusalem, in fact, he says to all of humanity, that ever was or ever will be, you have sinned. And judgment through exile is coming. And it can be eternal judgment and eternal exile. But trust in God. For He will redeem you through His servant and His Son. He will make all things new and bring His rescued and redeemed people home to the new Jerusalem. He will bring His rescued and redeemed people home to the new heavens and the new earth. Do you see how grand this vision of the God of salvation is? It's not just with a small people in one corner of the globe, but it is the whole cosmos. Do you see that in Jesus Christ we have such a great salvation? And the proper response to the message of Isaiah is then to turn from our sins and to put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord's servant and son. Let's pray together.